The following is brought to you with no commercial interruptions. Listen up. Butterfly in the sky. I can go twice as high. Take a look. It's in a book. A reading rainbow. Welcome to the Better Band Podcast, an all-encompassing trip through every song in the Pearl Jam catalog. I'm your host, Brandon Paloma. Each episode, I go track by track with a guest through every album, soundtrack, single, and b-side to discover why you simply can't find a better band. Welcome back to the Better Band Podcast. This is Brandon. Today, I am talking with Stephen Hyden. You may know him from such podcasts as the IndieCast, as cultural critic at Uproxx, or from his books such as This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A and the Beginning of the 21st Century, and Long Road, Pearl Jam and the Soundtrack of a Generation Coming Out Tomorrow. Stephen, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Brandon. Oh, of course. Anytime I get to dork out about anybody about Pearl Jam, and even <laughs> though this isn't a specific song, as I usually do for uh, my formatics, uh, it's okay because you have this book about Pearl Jam that is a delight. I'm saying it on the record, on the podcast. Great book. Love the book. Well, thank you. I'm I'm really happy to hear that. You know, it, Pearl Jam has so many devoted fans, and you know, I my last book was about Radiohead. They obviously have a very committed fan base, and when when you tackle a band like this that has so many just intense fans who know everything about the band, there is a certain amount of anxiety. You want to please them. You want them to like the book, even if they don't agree with everything in the book. So to hear you say you like it, that makes me feel good. Ah, yes. Well, I'm probably biased because I have my own Pearl Jam podcast, so I'm that kind of Pearl Jam nerd. Exactly. Well, you're, <laughs> you're, the, you're the core of the demographic that I'm trying to reach with this book. So you liking it, that means a great deal to me. All right. Well, uh, before we get into talking about the book, like I said, there are certain formatics that I follow. So since this is the first time that I've had you on, I need to ask you, Stephen, when did you first hear of Pearl Jam? So, 10 came out about a week and a half before my 14th birthday. So, I am smack dab in the middle of the core audience that was with Pearl Jam at the beginning, where they weren't really a band that you had to discover, because certainly by you know mid-1992, they were so ubiquitous. And this is something that I explore in the book. I feel like this is something that gets forgotten when we talk about the great American rock bands that Pearl Jam achieved a level of popularity from, say, I would say definitely 92, that being their breakout year, until 95, 96, where you really can't even talk about them in terms of other rock bands. They had Taylor Swift level success at that time. Just an incredible profile. So mm -hmm. I remember hearing uh, a live on the local radio station, WAPL, that it was a local rock station and they would play a lot of older rock songs like Styx, Ario Speedwagon, that kind of stuff. And then they would play newer stuff. 
And I remember hearing Alive very early on. It might have been right when that record was released. It was like late summer of 91, going into the fall of 91. And I have to say that initially, like during that 10 period, 10 and also Temple of the Dog and the single soundtrack and then being on the Lollapalooza tour and like the MTV Unplugged episode, all of these things coming together to really blow them up in 92. I was a bit of like a reactionary to Pearl Jam where I was the guy who's like, this band is so popular that I can't really stand them. You know, I was a Nirvana guy at the time. Mm -hmm. And then they put out Versus in 93, and then it was all over, really, with that, where I couldn't really keep up the cool guy reactionary facade. (laughs) Like, that was the record where I was like, okay, this is the shit. Like, I I love that record so much. And, And to this day, I think if you look at 10... You could make the argument that that, from a songwriting perspective, is a superior record. I mean, there's just so many hits on that album and so many just cornerstones of their set list to this day that are from that record. But the thing with verses that really hit me, and this plays into the one of the themes of the book, is that that really showcased the physicality of Pearl Jam and what they were on stage. Mm-hmm. Clearly, that's a studio record, but... Brendan O'Brien was able to capture as much as you can in the studio what Pearl Jam was as a live band. And this is a conversation I think that goes on throughout my book, the live experience of Pearl Jam versus the studio experience and how I feel like over time, the band's greatest legacy, even though they've made many great albums, is as one of the great American live rock bands. I feel like that's their calling card. I think that that is what has sustained them over the course of 31 some odd years and it was something i was really interested in in discussing in the book along with really digging into their discography did you have uh friends back then that uh were into pearl jam or were they listening to other stuff no again pearl jam was so fundamental to teenage rock culture in the early 90s that if you were into rock and roll i i mean surely there were people that hated pearl jam but they were so central to everything you know, they are what I imagine like what Led Zeppelin was like in the early 70s. You know, I wasn't around for that. But just this common touchstone that everyone liked. Yeah, all my friends were, were Pearl Jam fans. And they had the posters on the wall, collecting bootlegs very early on. Yeah, I mean, I, again, it, it's, it, it's funny to talk about Pearl Jam, I guess for someone of my generation, as a band that you would discover. Because they just seem like they entered your world, mm-hmm. you know, if you were a teenager in 91, 92, where it's like discovering, like, the sun or something, you know? <laughs> like, you don't really discover the sun. The sun, you wake up in the morning and the sun is there. Like, that's what Pearl Jam was like in the early 90s. It's the Isaac Newton thing where, you know, everybody knows that things fall and there's gravity, but it's not until, you know, it hits you on the head that you're like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. There's something going on here. One of the things I find really fascinating about Pearl Jam, especially in retrospect, you know, looking back on them in 2022, is that it is a challenge to explain their stature to someone who wasn't around at the time, just because there's no equivalent in modern music to what Pearl Jam was, which was this really traditional type rock band, you know, from the continuum of great rock bands going back to the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And I write about this in the book, talking about their connections, like to The Who and Bruce Springsteen, and how they were very deliberate about tipping the cap to their forebears, Neil Young being another obvious example. And 
just a band like that, like there's still bands like that today, but a band like that, that is also on magazine covers, also being played around the clock on MTV, a band that is at the center of music, that whether you like them or not, you had to know what Pearl Jam was to understand like what youth culture was, you know, in the early 90s. It's kind of impossible to wrap your head around now, like a rock band having that status. Yeah, yeah. Now we're we're used to like a pop star having that status or a rapper, Mm -hmm. you know, but not a five-piece rock band. And I think revisiting that period and exploring it and and just writing about like how that happened and why and how Pearl Jam was able to survive the collapse of that by the end of the 90s, I thought was a really interesting thing to ponder in a book. Yeah, you're saying that you were kind of more into Nirvana when it was all the whole Seattle thing was happening and exploding and everything like that. Do you think there was like a little bit of a sort of, I don't know, like, oh, the Simpsons did it with Pearl Jam, where it was sort of like, oh, you know, they're just doing the same thing that the 70s bands did before. And, you know, so that's kind of, uh, that's older people music. That's more sort of akin to that, whereas Nirvana sounds more young and out of nowhere, you know, if you weren't listening to, you know, the Pixies or any of the other sort of uh, uh, bands like that, the Melvins or something. Yeah, I mean, again, I was 14 when 10 came out and uh, and then Nevermind came out in September of 91. So they came out right, right around the same time, along with uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, yeah. like the Metallica Black album. The Guns N' Roses Use Your Illusion albums came out. I mean, like there's like a six-week period like where just a gargantuan rock album came out like every week. Obviously, 10 wasn't in the moment seen as a gargantuan rock record because it took a while for that to take off. But certainly in retrospect, it's an incredible run. I think with, you know, Nir- with Nirvana, you know, Kurt Cobain was trashing Pearl Jam yeah. in the press for a long time. And I was a 14-year-old kid. I was very impressionable. So I looked up to this guy and he's trashing Pearl Jam. I just took it at face value. You know, I didn't know enough necessarily to question that. And again, it wasn't until later, because I always felt like I pretended not to like Pearl Jam during the 10 era. I was very self-conscious about the alt-rock politics. So I think I was really pretending. Because I loved the single soundtrack. I loved the Pearl Jam songs on there. It's like, like, who am I kidding? And really, aesthetically, you know, I was already getting into classic rock at that time, too. I was listening to Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Neil Young records and... Pearl Jam was very much more a part of that tradition than any other band really of that era. You know, I think really what it was with Pearl Jam versus Nirvana is that as big as Nirvana was after of Never, after Nevermind, Pearl Jam just got way bigger. Mm-hmm. I remember going back to school in the fall of 92 and it was like Pearl Jam shirts were everywhere. You know, like they were the band and they were the band that like everyone liked. It wasn't just the punks. It wasn't just the music people. Like, the popular people also liked Pearl Jam, you know? And that's, in a way, one of the great things about them is that they really bridged a lot of different groups in the school. But if you were a a snarky contrarian like I was, you know, <laughs> that would inspire you to be suspicious of Pearl Jam. And really, you know, I think that was in a way, part of Eddie Vedder's angst at the time, too. I think he also felt that loss of control and loss of context, you know, where you don't have your people, your people is everyone. And that can be alienating, especially with a band like Pearl Jam, where once they got together, their rise really was meteoric. I mean, if you, if you trace 
the amount of time from their first show, you know, in uh, October of 1990. And then you just go two years later to October of 92, you know, and the Jeremy video is all over MTV. You know, 10 has really blown up. You know, the single soundtrack is also in the top 10. The Temple of the Dog is also in the top 10. You know, we're talking about 24 months where they became one of the biggest bands in the world, if not the biggest, certainly young rock band in the world. Yeah. And of the many facts, because in the intro to my book, I talk about how I really love studying the careers of bands. Like I'm fascinated by why bands succeed and why they fail and how you can draw connections to different bands, like how a lot of bands kind of rise and fall for the same reasons. And what drew me to this book and wanted to write about Pearl Jam is that I think they really do have one of the most fascinating trajectories. Like the fact that they got successful so quick and really had to learn who they were in real time in front of millions of people. Like they didn't really become the band that we know today almost until the end of the 90s. Like they kind of had to go through the 90s to become the band that we know now and the band that survived. And they did that while having tremendous success and being extremely famous. But yeah, they really grew up in public in a way that I think few bands have. And it was a very traumatic process for them. And just revisiting that period, I'm just amazed that they survived. It is a miracle that they survived, especially when you consider all of the peers of theirs who didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, And, and Pearl Jam arguably had the most intense experience uh in the 90s so uh when everybody picks up their books uh of this tomorrow you're gonna see that uh the chapters of long road are sort of organized like a mixtape yes uh there's like a side a and a side b uh for like the halves sort of of the book and each chapter corresponds to a song either like a specific live version or just an album track for a couple of the songs did you come up with the songs first for each chapter or did you have like the theme of the chapter and what you wanted to write about and then you had to find the song that sort of fit in with that uh, as you as, as, uh, as you got to the wire and you had to turn in the book or whatever? Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit of both. Sometimes there were songs that I was like, I really want to spotlight this. I mean, I should say that the song that's mentioned in the chapter title of each of each chapter, it's not. It doesn't mean that the chapter is all about yeah, it's that not about song. That song. It's really about using that song as an entry point for a particular moment in Pearl Jam's career. Mm-hmm. So there were certainly times where I felt like, I know I want to talk about this, and what's a song from this period that would be a good hook for that? Glorified G, for instance, I think would be an example of that, which is a song that you wouldn't necessarily pull out of verses and say, this is the representative song that I want to talk about. But it just worked because I wanted to talk about, and I'm going to totally mangle his name. I joke about this in the book, about how I always mispronounce his (laughs) name. Dave Abruzzese. I think I totally butchered that. I go with uh, saying it like uh, an Italian, Abruzzese. Abruzzese. I wanted to talk about him in that chapter. And Glorified G was a good way to to get into there. Uh, but in other instances, there were just songs that I love that I felt like, well, this can, I want to talk about this song and I can find a way to get this in. You know, Footsteps, for instance, was an example of that. That's one of my favorite, certainly B-sides mm-hmm. for Pearl Jam. But I, I think just one of my favorite Pearl Jam songs, period. You know, especially the version on the Jeremy single, yeah, which was recorded on Rockline Live. 
in May of 1992, there's the version on Lost Dogs, which I think is the same version, but they overdubbed a harmonica on it, which is how they play it live. And it's like, ah, you don't need... I, I, I don't <laughs> mind it when they play it live with the harmonica, but on the record, it, I, I feel like it sounds kind of corny. But like the original version, where it's just Eddie and Stone, I think is such a gut-wrenchingly beautiful song. So I, And I felt like that's a cool song to talk about from that period because there's so many over-discussed early Pearl Jam songs. And, and, and that one felt like it was a little bit of a, a lost jewel. Even though I know among fans, that's a song that everybody knows. So yeah, it was like a little bit of both. I mean, there was like personal favorites that I wanted to reference and then other songs that just worked really well as a signifier for a particular topic or era that I was going to be writing about. Yeah, I think that um, you you describe... Uh, we'll, we'll just say Dave A perfectly as uh, as the Poochie of the band, which <laughs> what, when I when I read that, I like had to right. pump my fists in the air just because I'm a big uh, Simpsons fan, too. So that was like, oh, yes, that's perfect. The name's Poochie D and I rock the telly. I'm half Joe Camel and a third Fonzarelli. I'm the Kung Fu hippie from Gangsta City. I'm a rapping surfer. You the fool, I pity. Right, right. <laughs> said with affection by the way because i love poochie the rocking dog and i love dave a so it was affection on both sides uh let's see you, you do talk a lot also in this book about the sort of pearl jam standing in for the the forgotten our forgotten generation generation x and pretty much i feel that there are two real key cultural contributions that our generation made uh, aside from, you know, the popularization of rap and the popification, I guess, of, of, of country music, if you're looking in the grand scheme of things. But it's sort of um, the concepts of the concept of authenticity and also just an overuse of sarcasm. Uh, I mean, like rappers, you know, wanted to keep it real and everything like that. And selling out was a scarlet letter. And like you said, uh, like yourself, like, yeah, Pearl Jam, you were a little bit, you didn't want to seem like you liked Pearl Jam. It was a little bit uh, not cool enough. That's more sort of the sort of strive to to seem, I guess, authentic and not wanting to let people in, possibly. I don't know. Like, do, do you think that, like, authenticity is something that is achievable or it was just a product that was marketed to us? Yeah, I mean, I think... That whole concept as it existed in the 90s, it was really tied to the way the media culture was mm -hmm. in the 90s, which is something I think, again, if you were uh, you know, born in the 21st century, if you're in your 20s now, this might be hard to understand. But you know, it really was the last stand of that pre-internet world where if it wasn't on mainstream TV or on mainstream radio or showing at like the local Cineplex that like a lot of culture was virtually invisible to people, you know, and, and that was especially true for someone like me who grew up in a small town and didn't have access to like art house theaters, you know, didn't really know a whole lot about indie rock before the explosion of alternative rock, you know, and I was dependent on what was on MTV and what was on like local top 40 radio or, or on my radio station. Mm -hmm. And I think when, when, when you talk about authenticity in that context, it was really about trying to find culture that wasn't this sort of bland, mass-produced garbage that was just exposed on the airwaves at the expense of like this really interesting stuff that was below the surface in a, in a true underground sense. And that for the longest time, like you needed someone who was connected to that to tell you where it was. 
You know, like if you didn't know somebody, if you didn't have like a cool older sibling or, you know, that really cool indie record store in your town with the clerk that could tell you about the Velvet Underground. The college or radio Nick station. Drake. Yeah, it, which existed in big cities, but for vast swaths of, like, swaths of the country, including where I lived, that stuff didn't exist. And I think the power of alternative rock for people like me was that it was like the door being broken down. And that was the first time you even knew about that stuff. And it wasn't just the records. It was the fact that Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder and all those guys were doing interviews where they were talking about bands that weren't being played on your local radio station. And maybe they weren't, their records weren't being carried at the local record store, but you could ask the record store to order those albums. You know, you could, you like knew about them for the first time because of a lot of this stuff. So mm-hmm. I think that is what authenticity means in that context, that people were just looking for something that felt deeper to them than, you know, what they were being exposed to. And of course, we live in a different world now where you just go on Spotify and you can hear anything you want. You know, it's not hard to hear anything now. It's not hard really to learn about anything now. You know, it's all a Google search away, which is great in a lot of ways. Again, if I was 14 and you had told me that I could hear Big Star just by going on my computer rather than having to like search high and low for the CD, you know, which I did for a long time, I would have been thrilled. But that search for a culture that meant something to you and the difficulty of that, it just, it gave it a certain romantic quality, I think, at the time. But to me, you know, authenticity, it really just means like if, when you hear a record, do you feel like the people making the music mean what they say? Do they care about it? You know, and, and that can be any kind of music. You know, it doesn't have to be just a rock band doing it. That can exist in any context. But, you know, does this make me feel something? Does it move me on, in some way? Like that to me is what authenticity is really about and, and, and what is most significant about it even today. Yeah, I, I kind of get the sense that, you know, as specifically like back then, like, you know, caring about the music, you know, letting letting people know you care was sort of looked down upon, like I said, with with like sarcasm and stuff like it was sort of be like, oh, you know, smooth move X or, you know, whatever. If somebody falls that it was a very sort of negative time, I, I think, especially for uh, young males, just because it's sort of being open and letting people know your feelings and stuff is seen as sort of feminine. And I think that's like a lot of not okay, not a lot, but I mean, like sort of there were some undercurrents of that in Pearl Jam specifically too. like you have like songs like black or something like that, where it's like, okay, I love someone and it kind of ended real bad. And I think that kind of broke some of that facade in there. But I mean, there was a lot of toxic masculinity and stuff, I think back back then and i don't know if do do you think that there is more sort of value placed on that because it is maybe seen as more male and so you know of course all that is always more exalted than anything seen as feminine uh and sensitive or anything like that i mean you got homophobia and all that other sort of stuff do you do you think that that could also be some of maybe why pearl jam wasn't as cool as like say like a nirvana where you know you have songs about rape or something where you know it was done sarcastically but it's also if you're not looking that deep into it it's just sort of 
like okay yeah it's it's being edgy it's you know sort of of uh being uh uncaring and and just harsh for harshness sake yeah you know i don't know i mean i remember that being a really progressive time for rock stars maybe the most progressive time I don't want to say, I mean, I would say that the average rock star now is probably as progressive, if not more progressive, maybe than rock stars at that time. But it it really was an abrupt shift because I, rem, I you know, I remember watching Warrant music videos and Poison music videos, and it'd be these blonde guys in leather pants who were just surrounded by beautiful women. And it was this fantasy of, you know, being like a rock and roll stud type thing. <laughs> and I was a nerd with a bunch of like, acne on my face like mm-hmm. i couldn't relate to that at all like it was very it, it it just made me feel depressed i mean now i look at that stuff and i have an appreciation for it like because i'm older now and there's a certain almost camp value to like a lot of that music but mm-hmm. at the time i just felt like i don't know if a girl's ever gonna like me and if this is what i have to be like to be a man i don't know if i can do it you know so it was very alienating to me so to see people like Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder and Michael Stipe being older, but R.E.M. really coming into prominence at this time, you know, these more sensitive male rock stars that were unafraid to talk about abortion rights and feminism and anti-racism and, you know, LGBTQ rights and all that stuff. You know, I, th- I think it was a really great time and I'm really appreciative that that was an influence on me at that time because i i do feel like that was a really kind of positive role model you know a lot of those guys because nirvana i mean i don't think that they were uh you know crass or sarcastic about those issues i mean they were pretty earnest about that too if you look at the liner notes of incesticide where kurt cobain is basically saying like if you don't like gay people and like you hurt women like don't be a fan of our band yeah, yeah. you know which is a pretty incredible stance for a band to take i mean rest assured the guys at Motley Crue weren't putting that in the liner notes of Dr. Feelgood. You know, like that was a pretty huge thing for them to do. I think what happened with Pearl Jam in terms of the backlash, again, it was just because they were so damn popular. Mm -hmm. They were so huge. And it was that tension between the ethos of alternative culture, which again, like we can talk about alternative music being like a marketing ploy, which to some degree it was. But speaking as someone who was young at the time, like I bought into it, you know, like I, I really did look at these bands as being more than just bands. Mm -hmm. And I know like a lot of other people did too. So whether that's, so even if that's marketing, a lot of people believed it. So if you believe it, then to some degree it's, it becomes true. And I think with Pearl Jam in particular, they definitely, I think, took that role seriously and that culminates with the Ticketmaster stuff of course where they become really the only band to try to make substantive change to the music business like there was really no other band there, were, there was a lot of talk about you know corporate media sucks or, or big labels mm-hmm. suck but Pearl Jam actually like took a real stand to try to change that which I think is very noteworthy and they took a lot of heat at the time and, and I think history really looks on them favorably for that but, you know, again, you know, Pearl Jam was so big so quickly that I think for people that were coming at it from more of like a punk rock point of view, you know, the success of Tenet just made Pearl Jam suspect in the eyes of those people. I think mostly unfairly, but that to me is like was their problem. And I'm putting problem in, in, in quote marks there. You know, their sin was writing songs that connected with millions and millions of teenagers. Mm-hmm. You know, like that was what was so terrible about them, which of course is not a terrible thing at all. 
But I think that was what was held against them. The fact that they, they were just so accessible to people and they, they spoke to so many people uh, so quickly. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not like, I'm just trying to, to, most people are aware of sort of a the seeming rivalry between like Pearl Jam and Nirvana. Like, I don't think at all like Nirvana was any specific sort of way or anything like that. I'm just, you know, it's it's kind of, there there were like a lot of Nirvana is cool. Pearl Jam isn't, and there was kind of like I like I was like that too, where it's kind of like oh, I don't want right. to tell people I like Pearl Jam because you know they are sort of the quote unquote more popular, but I mean everybody oh, like everybody said oh yeah Nirvana Nirvana Nirvana, right? And then, you know there were the one or two freaks who were like oh Alice in Chains, and you're like what? No, but <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and and again, I, all of this stuff, it, it's so silly in retrospect because oh, you know, yeah, why yeah. not just like I mean, because now it's like well everyone like people who like these bands like all the bands you know mm-hmm. as you would because they're of a similar ilk i mean it doesn't really it, there's nothing musically really that's incompatible with with those bands but you know kurt cobain he talked a lot of shit about pearl yeah, yeah. jam and it really did a lot of damage to pearl jam's reputation it didn't hurt them commercially at all it certainly but it just hurt their, I guess, indie cred or however else you want to describe it. But uh, and, I, and I've seen this observation made before that, you know, the thing with Pearl Jam is that they did find a way to be this absurdly popular band that can play arenas or even stadiums while having little to no media profile, mm-hmm. you know, which is what they have now. Like they have little to no media profile at all. And yet they can sell tickets anywhere and sell a lot of tickets. If they put out a record, it's going to probably be number one that week on the charts, if not in the top two or three. But they don't have to play the game in a way that even like other rock stars of their generation continue to play. You know, that there is a, you know, I mean, the Foo Fighters obviously are in a state of flux right now, but, you know, they pursued mainstream coverage and mainstream relevance, however you want to describe relevance in a very aggressive way, in a way that Pearl Jam hasn't for a long time. And this is one of the many amazing things about them, that they can operate in a lot of ways like an indie band, but they are performing on the biggest stages, you know? And there's not really... I'm hard-pressed to think of another example like that, you know, where... Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why they end up getting compared to the Grateful Dead, I suppose. But all of these things, all these decisions that seemed chaotic in the 90s, they really paid off in the long run you know, with them. And they were able to pull off this magic trick of a career where they can kind of have it both ways, you know? And I just think that's a pretty amazing thing. And it was really fun to write about that and to think about it. Like you've also written about uh, Radiohead. Yes. Like we mentioned, and there is sort of like a difference, I think, in some of their fans where like both the bands are expanding and looking towards the future and trying to find different elements of their sound that they have. And, you know, I think kind of more with Pearl Jam fans, it's kind of like, oh, you know, they don't do stuff like they used to. I want to hear the old stuff. And and Radiohead is kind of like Radiohead fans are kind of like, oh, yeah, I want to see like what they do next. Uh, You know, there are some people who kind of like, oh, you know, uh, the middle period is sort of better than a little bit of the later period, but you know, they, they still got it, I guess, in a sense. And they, they don't really have like, uh, what was it? Some 41, the guy said, it's like, Oh, why don't they just play creep? And 
you know, it's kind of like, I don't know if that's what the Radiohead fans want, but that is sort of what I think, at least maybe not Pearl Jam fans, but the people who go to Pearl Jam concerts maybe are are, are more like, they sort of have a, oh man, I didn't even really know. <laughs> well, it, it, it is interesting with both bands because there is a similarity with Pearl Jam and Radiohead where really starting in the late 2000s, they almost go into hibernation as recording acts. You know, like like Pearl... Yeah, and, play, like, and, and they both, I think, were a little media, I think, averse as well. Like, not really wanting yeah. to get out there and, oh, for sure. you know, press the flesh and do all the talk shows and everything like that as well. And Radiohead is, is another example of what I was talking about before, where they're another band that consciously stepped away yeah. from being in the center of culture and found a way to operate outside of that. I don't think Radiohead's ever been as popular as Pearl Jam. I mean, that's that's a different... I mean, they were... Ne- as big as Radiohead was, they had never had a hit record as big as 10 or even Versus or Vitology. I mean, those records are monumentally huge. I mean, o- OK Computer is the best-selling record they've done. I, I don't know if that has sold 2 million records in the U.S. It's probably somewhere between a million and two in the U.S., you know, whereas 10 is, like, in the neighborhood of, like, 15 or 16 million. I mean, just an exponentially like bigger level of success that Pearl Jam is dealing with uh, and having to to manage in their time. You know, this is something I write about in the book and I bring it up gingerly and I'll bring it up gingerly here. And I say this as someone who loves Pearl Jam and loves a lot of Pearl Jam records, but I don't know if they are naturally gifted at making albums. Like Mm -hmm. if they are geared toward the studio in, in a way that like say Radiohead is, where I think Radiohead is a great live band too. But like they are, they use the studio in a way that you could liken to the Beatles or the, or the Beach Boys, you know, the great studio bound musicians. Whereas Pearl Jam to me is more like the Who in that there are really good Who albums, but you would rather hear a a Who live bootleg than a studio record. And, And that is true for me with, with Pearl Jam. As much as I like their best records... I think that their strength is as a live band. And when you take the songs that they've recorded and you put them in a live situation, uh, it, it, it just becomes transformed. And Ben Oral, to me, is the ultimate example of that. Because that's an album that, to me, does not work on record. But that 2000 tour where they were playing those songs, it's electrifying. Mm-hmm. Like Something just comes to life when they play those songs live. And I just wonder... I mean, I think there's a lot of factors going on in terms of like the slowing down of, of Pearl Jam's recorded output. But I also feel like, you know, if I were going to talk about like what is Pearl Jam's brand or what is the core of their art, it is those five guys, and I guess Boom too, on stage plugged in and playing rock shows in front of 10,000 or so people. Like that is their superpower. And it just feels like albums over time become an adjunct to what they do. What they do is we're a touring band. And I think mm-hmm. that's something that really became a focal point in the 21st century with them. Uh, when they got out of the 90s, you know, which was a period where, you know, it was hard to see Pearl Jam for a while in the 90s. You know, at the height of their fame, they weren't touring very much. And part of that has to do with Ticketmaster. And part of that has to do with just inner turmoil in the band. It really wasn't until the aughts that, like, oh, you could see Pearl Jam fairly often. And they were going to kill it every single time. And that just became something that, like, well, this is just like a super reliable great band. They're going to come to your town 
and it's going to be great every single time. And it's going to be different every single time. And uh, so that to me is, I don't know. I, 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 I feel like music critics in general, we put too much emphasis on albums and not enough on the live show. And because I think that live performance is a big part of what bands do. And in the case of Pearl Jam in particular, I think that's a big part of their art. I mean, I think that is what they are masters of above anything else, playing killer three-hour rock shows. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a real sort of human need for community and for being together with people and stuff. And, you know, alcohol and uh, food and all that stuff was meant to bring people together and sort of share and have a community and everything like that. And I think that the Pearl Jam live experience is another sort of communal sort of event where people get together and and have joy and, and can experience the band. And I think the, the music at that point is almost secondary. It's just the uh, it's just the excuse sort of like, uh, hey, you know, I'm giving you a call because it's your birthday. And but hey, you know, let's catch up and, and, and talk or something like that. Although the music is really damn good, though. I oh, mean, yeah, like it is good. Though, lot, like, the, like the bootlegs, even as they've progressed, you know, now in the middle age, you know, they've maintained, a, I think, a really high batting average in terms of playing live. You know, and I think that's something that becomes more precious as they get older, because not only have they been around for so long and people have connections to what they do, but there's also fewer bands that provide that type of experience where not only are they a great band, but you also have a sense of history here where you get that feeling when you go see Bruce Springsteen and the East street band, mm-hmm. you know, that, Oh, these, these people have been together for a long time. There's a shared history that they have together and that the audience has with them. You know, the Rolling Stones have that and Pearl Jam has that. There's not many bands that, have that kind of legacy to them where it's something you can plug into and know that I liked this in 1991 and I like it now. It's relevant to me now in 2022. How many things like that are there in your life? You know, you may not be friends with people you went to high school with anymore. You don't have, you might not have like the records that you bought then, you know, you know, maybe you've had family members that have passed away. They're gone. But this band is still here. And I think that's a really valuable tether to your own history that a lot of people share. You know, it's not just Pearl Jam's history. It's like a personal history as well. So, you know, that's another thing I I, I wrote about in the book. I think with bands like that, that's a big part of why people go to these shows. You were talking about this feeling of community. But it's also like connecting with a version of yourself that that doesn't exist anymore. You know, that's gone. Except for the connection that you have to this band. Yeah, a ship of Theseus, or is that what it was? The uh, the 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 uh, thought experiment, or whatever, where it's kind of like, oh, you replace every part of the boat. Is it still the same thing? Right. Or is that thing about how like your cells reproduce every seven years, so you're a different person physically every seven years? Yeah. But but so much of life is transitory, you oh, know. Yeah, yeah. And, and and sometimes a band might be the only anchor that you have to yourself you know and that's a pretty profound thing that kind of goes beyond rock and roll or, or entertainment you know the i think that's why this stuff matters to people you know there's a primal need to feel like there's a foundation to life you know that that we're not just floating through space that something roots us to the ground and there's so few things now that feel like they root you to the ground but maybe your favorite band does that 
you know, because you could still go see them over the years, and it's something that you love to do, and you've always loved to do, and hopefully you it will continue, you know, in the years to come. Yes, the uh, the unexamined life is not worth living, and this band is worthy of examination. So you should pick up this book from my guest Stephen. Thank you so much for coming and uh, and dorking out with me today about Pearl Jam. It was my pleasure, and uh, thank you, and I hope you all like the book. Oh, I'm sure they will. If they if they like this podcast at all, they're definitely they're definitely gonna like the book. They're like, I don't even know why I'm <laughs> listening to this thing. I should just have read the book instead. I don't know. <laughs> the Better Band Podcast is produced by Brandon Palomo and published using a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 license. Please visit CreativeCommons.org or email ListenUpReno at gmail.com for more details. All music played is owned by their respective publishers and copyright holders and is reproduced for review purposes only under fair use. You can subscribe to the Better Band Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or from BetterBandPod.com using your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at BetterBandPod. I'm on Twitter at Brandon P. B-R-A-N-D-E-N-P. If you would like to support this podcast, you can go to either ko-fi.com slash Brandon P or patreon.com slash Brandon P. You can also just give me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, but don't forget to tell your friends. If you would like to be a guest on a future episode, send an email to betterbandpod at gmail.com or send me insights and stories you'd like to share and I'll read them on the season finale episode. Again, I'd like to thank my guest Stephen Hyden and as always, this is Brandon saying, I've seen plays that were more exciting than this. Honest to God, plays!